I would like to invite you to look with me to Micah chapter 7. Micah 7. Um, uh, our sermon title this morning is I Will Wait. And the key words for our worshipers in training are woe, trust, and hear. As we return to Micah this morning uh, from our, our hiatus last week, I want to take a moment to reorient our hearts to the text before us. We are now in the final chapter of this book. Uh, the final chapter where the promised judgment of chapter 6 begins to give way to the final word of hope that we will find uh, at the end of chapter 7. Chapter 7 ends, as we will see, Lord willing, in a few weeks, it ends by reflecting upon the mercy of God who is faithful and shows steadfast love to His people. Chapter 7 begins, however, with a pronouncement of woe, more judgment from the pen of the prophet Micah. Micah says, woe is me. But then in verse 7, even of this section here in Micah, verse 7, he makes a resolve. Regardless of his present circumstances, he says, I will trust in the Lord. Let's read verses 1 to 7 then of Micah 7 and see how do we move from the woe pronounced in verse 1 to the salvation enjoyed in verse 7. Seven. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, my, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them are like a briar, the most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchment, of your punishment, has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation, my God will hear me. As we consider these verses this morning, I want to do so under three headings. First, in, uh, from verses 1 to the first part of verse 4, we will see the bleak circumstances under which Micah continued to prophesy. Second, in the second half of verse 4 through verse 6, we will see again judgment coming uh, upon the people of Israel for 
uh, for their sins, especially the sins of their leaders. And third, in verse 7, we will see that fearful, trying, painful days are nevertheless to be met by God's people with a steady resolve to exercise faith and hope. And so first look with me, verses 1 to the first part of verse 4, and we'll see the bleak circumstances of Micah's day. In verse 1, Micah describes his own experience in Jerusalem by means of an analogy. He compares himself to one who has come to the fields uh, after the summer harvest in hope of finding something to eat, and yet he finds nothing. The field has been completely stripped and is now barren, empty, and useless to him. The fruit that was gathered, the fruit was gathered, and then uh, a second pass was made through by the owners of the field to make sure that nothing was left on the vines. In the law of Moses, Israel was required to leave some gleanings for the poor in their fields. Leviticus 19, 9-10, for example, forbid Israelites, Israelite harvesters from going back through the field a second time to pick the vines clean. Micah, therefore, depicts himself here as a poor man stumbling into the fields, hungry. Except instead of finding a few clusters remaining on the vine for him to satiate or even just partially blunt his hunger, he finds nothing, not even a single fig. There is no fruit left with which he may find any measure of nourishment. His soul is left to starve, searching for relief from his relentless hunger only to find none. This, however, is but an analogy. What is the fruit for which Micah searches? It's righteousness. He searches high and low throughout Israel and says he cannot find even one righteous leader. He says that the godly have perished from the land. No one among the leaders walks uprightly. No one is left. All have turned aside. And he then uses two metaphors to describe the condition of Israel's rulers. In verses 2-3, to he describes them as hunters who mercilessly prey upon their subjects. He says they lie in wait uh, for blood and they hunt down, trapping their brothers in their nets. Their hands are on evil to do it well. They are cold. Calculating, plotting, and scheming. They are good at wickedness. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe. The great man, the wealthy, powerful king, utters the evil desires of his soul. He speaks plainly about the evil intentions of his heart with no intent to hide it. And thus, Micah says, they weave it together. What is he talking about? What is that, this weaving that's taking place here? We saw in chapters two to three, uh, two and three, and um, a few weeks ago in chapter six, nine through sixteen, that, that those in the marketplace defrauded their brothers there with unequal weights and um, unjust measures and balances. 
we also saw that neither the poor, or the poor can, uh, at least those without connections, they cannot get any justice in court. And so here he's reiterating that. The magistrates, the judges, the great one, they've all woven together this net of wickedness with the wealthy oppressors of Israel so that no one escapes. The system, in other words, is rigged. It has been rigged. The leaders of Israel so skillfully planned their wickedness that they masterfully wrung crippling payments out of all their brothers. He then changes the metaphor in verse 4. He says, at their worst, right, the rulers of Israel are like ravenous wolves stalking their prey. But then he says, at their best, they're like a briar or a thorn hedge. They strike down their brothers in cold blood on the one hand and obstruct justice on the other. Instead of the sweet and pleasant fruit for which the prophet longs in verse 1, he finds only thorns. One commentator writes, these legal sharks have so conspired together that no one can negotiate the tangle of laws and rulings, and to attempt it will result only in painful injury. The application of these words for our present day, I believe, is immediately apparent. The legal and political system of the United States has fallen on hard times. Bills that are thousands of pages long are written, passed, and signed into law overnight. The U.S. tax code is one of the most onerous and confusing things I think you can find on planet earth and what about the quality of many of the men and women that are in positions of political leadership within our three branches of government from top down it seems you can count almost on one hand the number of people who aren't on the face of it utterly corrupt human beings whose only goal in life seems to be to get re-elected at whatever cost. They break our legs, steal from us, and then give us a portion of that money back to pay for crutches and expect an attaboy. And we give it to them time and again. They take advantage of troubling situations to strip away freedom and impose harsher regulations on an increasingly compliant population. Just think of the recent shelter-in-place orders that have been handed down by state governors over the past month. Simply reading these things seems to require multiple advanced degrees in translating foreign languages. Think of the various bailouts we are now being offered, that the American voters are being offered by the federal government. The requirement for, these, for qualifying for these things seems to change by the hour. And the requirements for whether the loans will be forgiven or not change as well. People are being fined and arrested simply for being outdoors in some places in our country. We have taken a medical and social issue and used it to knock the last leg out from underneath an already crippled economy. Bureaucrats and government agents have already found and will continue to find more ways to 
debase our currency, increase our fear, and impose harsher regulations upon us. The system, in other words, is rigged so that no one can escape. It seems, perhaps, that we have not learned the lesson of Micah 7. We are walking in their footsteps. And so here Micah accuses Israel in these first four verses. And notice he says, woe is me. He does it not from a place of pride and arrogance, but from a broken heart. We saw this in chapter 1. He weeps over these things. And we should too. And so that is the, these are the bleak circumstances of Micah's day. This is the accusation he levels against them. Look secondly with me in verses 4-6, to six, the remaining part of verse 4 into verse 6, where we see that the judgment of God was to come upon Israel for her sins. Micah says to these wicked, evil men, the day of your watchmen, of your punishment, has come. And he pronounces this word over them, now their confusion has come. It is at hand. Micah here makes a very abrupt shift from accusation to judgment. The intent of this abrupt shift is likely to uh, portray the abrupt nature of coming judgment. Judgment, in other words, often strikes at a time when we are utterly unsuspecting. We see this in several places throughout Scripture. In 1 Samuel 4, we're told that once Eli heard that the ark of God had been taken away from Israel by the Philistines, he fell backward instantly. Out of his, he fell out of his chair and broke his neck and died. We read of Uzzah later who when he touches the Ark of the Covenant to steady it, he drops dead. Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5 were both suddenly struck dead when their evil schemes were discovered. Herod in Acts 12 is struck dead when he fails to give God glory when the people praise Him as divine. And it's not just lone individuals to whom this sudden judgment occurs. In number 16, the whole earth opens up and swallows 250 people in an instant who were in the middle of a rebellion and mutiny against Moses led by Korah. And in addition to those who died with Korah, a plague swept through Israel killing nearly 15,000 people. The point, judgment comes swiftly. And so he makes this abrupt, abrupt shift from accusing Israel for her sins to proclaim a word of judgment against Israel. The day of your watchman, of your punishment, he has come, he says. The exact meaning of this statement isn't clear, but the gist is pretty straightforward. Watchmen were those who worked in shifts at the lookout on a city's wall to warn the people of coming danger. They could see uh, approaching and encroaching armies and warn the people to either perhaps flee or to get ready for battle. And so the watchmen here in Micah 7, 
they are to be understood as the prophets of God who had warned Israel over and over of coming judgment. But Israel had, however, neglected to pay attention to her watchmen. And so now she is caught unawares on the day of her visitation from the Lord. It's also not uh, precisely clear what the historical referent is here. What is this judgment, this confusion? If this particular prophecy in the book occurs before 701 B.C., it's then principally a reference to the impending Assyrian invasions. If it's after 701, it may be a reference to the coming Babylonian invasion of 586 B.C., or simply a description of the moral, social, political, spiritual, emotional, and financial turmoil that would plague Jerusalem over the course of the next century. He says their confusion, their panic is at hand. God was bringing judgment on His people and throwing them into utter confusion and panic. Specific illustrations of this panic are then given. In light of the circumstances which would be hurled upon the people of Israel, they would find familial and social schisms everywhere. Micah works progressively from the lesser to the greater relational divisions that would result from this judgment. He says each man in Israel would be unable to put any trust in his neighbor. He would also find his close friends to be disloyal. More than that, those of his very own house would turn against him. Even his covenant lover, his wife, who lies in his arms, bears his children. Even covenant bonds shall be as nothing in the day of this panic he was to hurl upon them. Guard the doors of your mouth, he says, from her who lays in your arms. He moves from neighbor to personal friend to confidant and bosom companion, as one author put it. No relationship is safe. Those of your very own house shall rise up against you. Men cannot rely upon what their neighbors and friends say. And likewise, he says, be careful what you utter even to your wife. She may use it against you. In this panic, he says, no one can be trusted. Now again, I don't know, I don't think it takes a doctorate in theology to make some applications of these verses to our present circumstances. Panic seems to be the word of the day. The West, seemingly more perhaps than any other place, has been brought down to its knees in utter fear and terror of this virus. Now, to be clear, it is affecting many people. And we cannot know the mind of God for He has not explicitly told us why He has sent this virus into the world or the panic that has resulted from it. A few weeks ago, even while we looked at Psalm 46, we noted that at least all of this is in part because of sin. Now, we can't really say probably because of whose sin in particular, but it reminds us all that sin brings death. 
And it is only through faith in the Lord Jesus that we can be delivered from the final death. But my point here this morning is different. Because regardless of the intent behind the virus itself, the panic that has resulted from it, I also believe is to be identified as perhaps a judgment from God. A nation like America that has revolted against the Lord to such a degree as we have should not be surprised when we are, as a whole, so deeply struggling to cope with a situation like this, severe as it is. We are a people who have for many, many decades put our trust in horses and chariots, as it were, rather than God. We have for years looked to our government to lead us and deliver us from hardships and calamities. Just now, we are expecting a government that is $24 trillion in debt to swoop in with trillions of dollars more to keep businesses running and people at work. The answer, it seems, for at least the last 90 years has been to look to the federal government to provide us help and aid and relief whenever disaster strikes. Wise planning and stewardship are completely out the window, and so has any sense of reliance upon God. Now, obviously, we do understand that God works through means, And my aim is not to suggest that we should pray that God would make money materialize out of thin air in our wallets overnight. Oddly enough, that is precisely the miracle that we are expecting from our governing officials as they work in cahoots with the Federal Reserve. But God does work through means, but our leaders, by and large, have proven themselves untrustworthy. And I don't believe we are called to rely upon them in our most desperate times of need. We should rely upon Christ. But you see, right now, we find ourselves looking like Israel, not merely at our political leaders with suspicion. But we're looking at each other with suspicion as well. I've heard stories of people in the grocery store getting death stares from others because they would dare come within 25 feet of another person. Or because they have their children with them. We are turning on each other with more ferocity by the day read of several government agencies opening up phone lines for people to call and report their neighbors for violating tyrannical shelter and order places. With these various orders, family fighting is sure to increase, which will include abuse of spouses and children often. As a nation, we have come to look with suspicion upon nearly everyone with whom we come into contact. Now, the point here, of course, is not to say that Micah's prophecy is fulfilled primarily through our reaction to the coronavirus. 
Micah's prophecy was fulfilled against Israel, certainly, at least by 586 B.C. Nevertheless, the word of judgment proclaimed against them here in Micah 7 is instructive for us. We are suffering from mass panic unlike anything that has happened at least in our lifetimes. And I think, therefore, it is a fitting question to ask why. So at some level, we must see it, as I said earlier, as an invitation to renewed faith and repentance toward the Lord Jesus Christ. The precise reason for this calamity and our reaction to it, perhaps, is beyond our our reach in full, at least for now. But a proper response to it is laid out for us. We have put our trust in war horse and chariot and the purse for far too long. Let us return in simple faith to the Lord Jesus. And so to that end, let's look finally at verse 7 where we see Micah's steady resolve. Despite the whirling, swirling world around him that was soon to be thrown into utter chaos and confusion, Micah stands with his resolve firmly fixed in his heart. He will put his trust in the Lord. He says, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Despite the covenant curses that were sure to befall the people of God for their covenant violations, Micah remains steadfast in his belief that through covenant faithfulness, he would be delivered as he trusts in God who shows steadfast love to those who fear Him. He sets himself to do two things here. And he has a confident assurance that God will respond with mercy. He says he will look to the Lord. That's one. Two, he will wait for the God of His salvation. Instead of working for God's favor and striving to acquire blessing from Him by means of the law, in the midst of this calamity he's facing, Micah decides he shall simply cast his gaze to heaven and wait for the Lord. He has decided to lift high the cup of salvation and and ask for another drink. To look to God, he has taken his eye off the things of earth to which he may have been so tempted to look for help and hope and salvation. His gaze, he says, is no longer fixed on the horse and its rider, on war horse and chariot, on bow and spear and warrior, but on God alone. In John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, Christian arrives at the palace beautiful and he had been warned um, that there were lions in the way. And sure enough, he finds them. But despite the prowling lions on both sides of the path from the gate to the palace, at the admonition of the porter, he looks straight ahead 
and he keeps to the middle of the path, and he walks safely between the lions without being harmed. For as he learned, they were chained up, and they could only come so far in. This is the resolve Micah has. He says, despite, as it were, the lions of panic and mistrust facing him, he keeps his eyes transfixed upon the Lord, and he's granted safe passage through the impending calamity and doom. And having his eyes fixed on God, he has settled it in his heart to wait. The only thing worse than waiting, I've been told, is wishing that you had. Waiting is hard. But how utterly important it will prove to be. Because you see, the waiting here is not describing mere inactivity, but a patient, confident expectation of hope in the God who saves that promotes holy, fearless living. God has promised to deliver His remnant. We've seen it several times in this book. He has promised this, and Micah has set himself to wait upon God for that deliverance. He would live by faith, trusting in the God who saves, even when his eyes tell him that all is falling apart around him. And this assurance that he has, remember, is not founded upon wishful thinking, but upon the character of God Himself. He says He will do the looking and the waiting, for He knows that God will hear Him. It is an interesting, uh, not quite turn of phrase, but close. This is the last time that the word here is used in the book of Micah. Over and over throughout the course of this prophecy, we have seen this word here, listen, used. Many times, Micah has called upon the people of God to listen to God. Once he called upon the mountains and the earth to come and hear of God's judgment and his indictment against Israel. And it's so, until now though, this word here has been used, it is one-way traffic. God speaks. We listen. That's how it works. But now, as we come to the end, we have this unbelievable promise given to us. God listens to us. Believer, do you know that? God hears you. He is listening right now. Are you fearful? Are you worried? Are you anxious? God is listening for you. And He's waiting for you to bring your anxious thoughts to Him. Bring your fears to Him. Go to Him in prayer and He will hear you. How can you be sure? How can I be sure that God will hear me? Because what Micah knows in part, we know in full. 
You see, Micah prophesied this in a day of shadows. In his day, he prophesied this judgment where son would turn against father, daughter against mother, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He says households will be torn apart in light of the chaos coming upon them. I would bet, though, that you've heard those words before. Probably not from Micah 7. Jesus in Matthew 10 and Luke 12 uses these words in reference to the world's response to His advent. Jesus came into an upside-down world where men hate and are hated by one another and He turned it right side up. Is turning it right side up. Households are divided in response to sin, we see, and in response to salvation. But herein lies our hope, brothers and sisters. Jesus Christ, who came to divide households, has united His own, which is comprised of people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. A world that is so divided and disjointed because of sin has been offered a reunion. Jesus came, lived a perfect, sinless life, died a sinner's death, and then as we particularly remember today, as we do every Lord's Day, but certainly today, culturally, we remember He died but didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead, triumphant over death, hell, and the grave. And He ascended to heaven where we are told He lives forever to make intercession for us. So how can I be sure that God hears my prayers? Because Jesus prays with me and for me. And not only that, but He has left me His Spirit, as we read in Romans 8, who also prays with me and for me. God listens to me and He hears me and He answers me because Jesus and His Spirit right now are praying for me. Do you know, brother, sister, that in your agony right now, Jesus is praying for you when you have no words Nothing but groans before God because of your fear. The Spirit brings your prayer sanctified perfectly by the blood of Christ before God who is delighted to hear and answer your prayer. Let us then with Micah and all the saints who are right now gathered around the throne of grace, our great cloud of witnesses who are cheering us on from above, let us look to God and wait for the God of our salvation who is working out all of these things for His glory and for the good of His people. Whatever tomorrow and next month and next year may hold for you, Jesus has 
conquered death and is therefore assurance for you that you will too. We can remember, as the song says, that the worst that may come but shortens our journey and hastens us home. Let us walk wisely, trusting God to care for us in distressing days, for sure. But let us, let us trust in God. I pray that God would minister to you well this day, believer. As you, as every Sunday, celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus' resurrection as the first fruits and the foreshadowing of our resurrection provide us great hope and assurance that death does not have the final say. And no matter what happens, in the end we shall be with the Lord forever in a world where no tyrants rule and no virus can exist for even a millisecond.